Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to the New Books Network in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Newman, and I'm an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Chicago. Today, I'll be talking with Vincent Yalenti, who's a cultural anthropologist who studies nuclear waste cultures of expertise. We'll be discussing his recent book, Deep Time Reckoning, How Future Thinking Can Help Earth Now. Welcome, Vincent, and thanks so much for joining me today to talk about your book. Good to be here. Thank you. Vincent, I wonder if you could uh, start us off by just kind of telling us a little bit about yourself and the kind of work that you did to write this book. What got you interested in uh, cultures of nuclear waste expertise? Yeah, so I'm originally from central Massachusetts, uh, so I don't have a pre-existing connection to Finland. I didn't grow up um, any more than anyone else from uh, interacting with nuclear facilities, even though they're widely distributed across the United States and other countries, uh, sort of hidden in plain sight, often the supply chains that go into these. Um, So the idea really sprouted uh, from an intellectual interest in uh, the sort of logistical aspirations behind exceedingly long-term engineering projects. Uh, It was about 2008. um, I was looking closely at the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, which is, of course, um, an underground backup uh, gene bank, which is designed to uh, safeguard crop genetic diversity for the long term. It's located in the Arctic in the uh, Norwegian island of Spitsbergen, the remote Svalbard archipelago. Um, I also started looking at like the San Francisco's Long Now Foundation's effort to uh, build a clock um, that uh, keeps time for uh, 10,000 years, a mechanical clock to sort of monumentalize and uh, speak through the ages, the ethos of long-term thinking, eventually landed on um, nuclear waste repository projects. So uh, by then, it's like 2010. Um, I find myself in this PhD program at Cornell University. Um, a little help from the uh, NSF, uh, National Science Foundation. I spend 32 months um, in Finland looking at their Okiloto Nuclear Waste Repository Safety Assessment Project. So I was there from uh, 2012 to 2014 looking at uh, the facility's safety case. Um, so this means looking at sort of... Uh, 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 the models of geological or hydrological or ecological events that could um, someday uh, occur or unfold in Western Finland over the coming tens of thousands of years, even hundreds of thousands of years in some cases, some of the geophysical models. Um, and I got really interested in when I was over there and how they sort of pondered distant future glaciations and climate changes and earthquakes and floods, human, human and animal population changes, all these different uh, um, um, possibilities or potentialities that the future could hold. Ended up doing about uh, 121 interviews with my interlocutors, some observation and participant observation as well. And that became the basis of this book uh, that we're here to talk about on the New Books Network today, Deep Time Reckoning. Wow. And could you, um, you mentioned a couple other things that you had been interested in before you decided on uh, focusing on Finland, but could you tell us a little bit about how the safety case kind of fits into the bigger picture of people thinking about futures of, of nuclear waste, kind of how it relates to things happening in other countries or or what makes it a unique case study for you? Yeah, absolutely. So the Finnish nuclear waste management company, POSIVA, um, they're currently building this underground facility that sometime in the mid-2020s is most likely going to be the world's um, first operating deep geologic repository for Uh, permanently disposing of spent nuclear fuel. And spent nuclear fuel is, of course, the uh, used-up nuclear fuel that's been removed after being used in a nuclear power reactor 
um, there's uh, the Okiloto and Lovisa um, nuclear generating facilities in Finland that uh, this is generally from. And so Finland's government issued POSIV a construction license to actually build this thing um, as recently as a, a 2015. Um, and that was the outcome more than 40 years of R&D work um, and plenty of uh, sort of planning to come up with some sort of final solution for spent nuclear fuel. So it made Finland the first country in the world to issue a construction license as well. So it's not only one of the earliest sort of to get hatched and keep its momentum without being sort of like killed by politics or legislation um, or um, litigation. Um, it it kind of kept plodding along roughly similar to the schedule set out in the early 1980s. So um, the license was granted by the uh, Radiation and Nuclear Safety Authority of Finland. It's called Stuk. Um, you know, issued a statement to the Ministry of Employment and Economy over there, uh, February 2015, as I mentioned. Um, and it said, hey, this passed uh, technical and regulatory review. Um, the concept for the facility is pretty interesting uh, in and of itself. Um, um, they build the, they dig these really uh, deep underground deposition holes um, and surround uh, the canisters in this absorbent uh, bentonite clay. Uh, the clay absorbs groundwater, becomes sort of a buffer between the nuclear waste canisters and uh, the crystalline granite bedrock that uh, comes to surround them. Um, and, you know, this this will go on for about a, hundred or so years and the plan is to eventually um sort of seal off and backfill the tunnels and decommission the repository uh eventually so this is called kbs3 uh they're doing something similar a lot of the r&d for that was done in sweden um to sort of design what this is about so sweden's pretty far along as well um so basically finland is looking like with sweden close by um they're going to have something like the world's first so they're currently undertaking a technical review of the operating license um, at the regulatory authority, um, which will mean um, that once they accept it, uh, once the Finnish government grants it or accepts it, if they choose to do so, uh, they can actually start taking in spent nuclear fuel and bringing it to a repository depth of about 400 or 450 meters. Um, so when this occurs, and observers are expecting it will occur, even though I think recently um, there was a call for more information. So, it, um, you know, when it, when exactly it occurs is still, you know, subject to regulatory approval, et cetera. Um, then POSIVA will become the country um, that actually puts one into operation um, first. Uh, and that's pretty exciting. So there are spent, there are nuclear waste repositories out there for low and intermediate level nuclear waste or transuranic nuclear waste, as it's called in um, the United States, uh, in the WIP repository um, in New Mexico. But this is, will be the world's first repository for spent nuclear fuel from commercial nuclear power plants and high level, which is a type of high level nuclear waste. Oh, that's great. And could you talk a little bit about how doing this work as an anthropologist is kind of key to some of the book's insights and, and also maybe a little bit about how, um, I mean, I like the way that you phrase your work as studying cultures of expertise and, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about how that is, uh, a specific form of ethnography that maybe isn't as common as some of the things that, um, you know, we all read about in intro to anthropology classes and things like that. Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, uh, you know, my book and this project is uh, it's, it's sort of a collaborative ethnography. Um, it's an anthropology of expertise, but sort of like theorizing or co-theorizing or um, co-conceptualizing things alongside a series of other experts from a you know a different country, a different institutional context, a different disciplinary context, 
So a lot of the people I'm kind of collaborating, collaboratively ethnographizing with um, are geophysicists or managers or chemists, physicists, lawyers, engineers, politicians, um, regulators, activists, banking professionals, members of the public. But the vast majority of them are the people developing these like forecasts of geological and hydrological and ecological events um, that could eventually occur in Western Finland over the you know coming tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of years. Um, so when I was in the field, I see them practicing expertise and implementing and enacting expertise in, in specific ways. They, uh, you know, combine techniques of analogical reasoning and quantitative modeling and qualitative scenario making. They kind of bricolaged them and fused them and um, combined and recombined them with things like mechanical stress testing and systems analysis and geological and ecological fieldwork. Sometimes they would go out and look at sort of analog sites. And so I found myself kind of immersed in the field, in this like transdisciplinary bricolage space, right? Like where the, from which these, from these like strange connections of experts emerge these visions of distant future glaciations and climate changes and earthquakes, et cetera. So um, I had sort of a different goal than my informants for the safety case, right? They were trying to, you know, create something that would pass regulatory muster so they could put a facility in operation. But um, I was more interested in how the project changed them as experts, right? So um, so the question is sort of these visions of far future bodies and societies and ecosystems are entering into their everyday lives in a very specific way. These are, they're, they're sort of emerging as artifacts. Um, deep time is an artifact that emerges out of team meetings and number crunching and data reporting and regulatory requirements and industry initiatives. And the book, the sort of anthropological labor is really about sort of co-theorizing with them side by side about this. So it's about sort of absorbing or retooling or redeploying um, these sort of long-sided patterns of reasoning that my informants use and repurposing them as techniques for making a deep time that's something that's a little more thinkable or something a little more amenable to analysis um, from an ethnographic standpoint. So the question is really, how do you transpose their knowledge into something that's a little more experienced near or something that I can build on and synthesize and work with? Um, so it's sort of like an anthropology of reason um, in Paul Rabinow's sense. It's sort of like an anthropology of knowledge um, in Frederick Barth, Barth's sense uh, for the people who are cultural anthropologists listening to this. Um, uh, but the overall goal is to sort of rethink the value of this type of highly technical future gazing expertise um, in this moment of, of sort of political, ecological and epistemic uncertainty we're currently in. Um, when I was writing the book, it was frequently called the Anthropocene and still is, uh, but uh that sort of context I couched this in. Um, so the question is, how can I work with these folks to scale up their type of novel type of expertise to ask larger questions about larger planetary ecological settings, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And and I think on that, uh, I mean, on your mentioning that, you know, the scaling up and the kind of synthesizing of this expert knowledge, uh, I want to kind of dive into the book itself. And one of the things that you do that I think is um, is very effective for the reader and also is uh, you know kind of unique in terms of your writing style is the use of uh, reckonings at the end of each chapter. Um, so before we kind of talk about the specific chapters, I, I wanted to ask you about those reckonings and sort of um, who you imagined as the the audience and kind of the the overall goal of encouraging this long-termist thought that you um, put forth in the book, you know, who do you have in mind as the reader to kind of, 
who are you translating the expertise for? Who are you kind of um, addressing with the reckonings? Yeah. Okay. So sounds like there's two parts to that. So the first part is what are the reckonings? Um, and those are sort of after I sort of engaged alongside my informants with their expertise, built upon it, retooled it with them, sort of co-theorized with them. I sort of like asked how I could spin that off as guidance for tackling larger term or longer term sort of larger scale planetary challenges elsewhere. So it could be climate change, biodiversity loss, population growth, urban planning, things like that. So the idea is like, let me write a book um, that can be useful to people outside of the nuclear waste community uh, that can help integrate deep time thinking into their everyday habits and um, sort of create institutional heuristics or blueprints that can be adopted in, outside the nuclear industry to build uh, more long-sided uh, societies, right? So, um, so it, the starting point is how can I um, collaborate with my informants to develop sort of like a, almost like a exercises for the mind, like an intellectual workout routine of sort of like thought experiments or uh, contemplative pathways that readers can walk down to sort of practice expanding their temporal awareness. Uh, Marcia Bjornrud, the geologist, calls this timefulness, becoming more, more mindful of the, the, the radically long-term timeframes of, you know, geology and ecology and, and our, our species and our um, the world around us in our lives and trying to integrate that more. Um, you know, Richard Irvine, the anthropologist, talks about scanning horizons of your everyday life for temporal disjunctures uh, in which sort of people abstract deep time out of their thinking or geological time because they're focused on the here and now. So um, the book kind of spins off reckonings at the end of each chapter is kind of what Foucault called a technology of the self, right? This is a way of sort of self-cultivating or training the mind like jujitsu or music or meditation or fasting or athletics or something. There's a way of training the mind, like approaching long-term like that, the long-term thinking like that, something that um, is sort of a disciplined practice, um, albeit one that is almost impossible to achieve, given that it's impossible to cognize deep time and um, impossible to uh, predict what happens tomorrow, let alone millennia from now. But it's something you can sort of get slightly better at, is something I argue. So um, sort of like, uh, you know, the art of war is like, like you know, um, a guide to cultivating a, you know, military general strategy, you know, from the Sun Tzu in the fifth century. This is kind of like, a practical guide to instill and cultivate uh, the mentality of the long-term thinker. So who's it exactly for? Um, well, that's kind of an interesting question because one sort of uh, framing of the book is that we live in this odd time um, in which it's no longer just the sort of task or burden of the geologists or the, or, or privilege of the geologists or evolutionary biologists or historians or anthropologists or theologians or, astrophysicists to reckon and grapple with deep time. Um, in the Anthropocene, this is our sort of collective and societal responsibility together, right? So um, I use the word we in the book sometimes, for instance. Um, I'm not really, I, I go into detail about this is not really an undifferentiated sort of species level we of like this we is in all humans, like the Anthropos of Anthropocene. It's more of an anyone who wants to pick up my book and read it and start imagining a little about deep time. So the we in my book is like kind of bringing readers along in a narrative style of like we can start, you know, imagining our local community as it will look in 
50 years based on climate models, or we can like find an archaeological artifact in a museum and imagine what, you know, our iPods will look like as archaeological artifacts in future museums or something like that. So um, I write in a more accessible voice to try to achieve a wider sort of we or like a wider audience than um, most sort of peer reviewed academic publications This came out with MIT press. So it's still an academic publication. Um, so, um, and it's really interdisciplinary. So I wanted to be able to travel across disciplines, but of course, like, you know, ultimately the audience is people in the STS and anthropology, sociology, but also nuclear science, you know, ecosystem science, environmental policy. Um, and then all these like odd sort of assortments of, uh, you know, effective altruism folks who write about a uh, uh, long-termism or things like that. That's another sort of space that I don't engage with, but it's an audience. Um, um, and there's a lot of like futurists and things like that who have picked up the book. I've noticed um, geologists have picked up the book. So uh, it's really interdisciplinary audience. So slightly more expanded, accessible, hopefully translate across disciplinary boundaries is what I was shooting for with these reckonings. Great. Um, and I think, I mean, one thing that that is very helpful in terms of the way that you are doing this kind of anthropology of knowledge and thinking about uh, this particular form of far future thinking is that in the first and the second chapter, you sort of show us two ways that um, that that kind of thinking takes shape. And, and you mentioned kind of deep time emerging as an artifact from some of the conversations that you had and some of the ways that people are thinking. Um, but you you have, um, in the first chapter, you, you talk specifically about the use of analogs um, in order to uh, help people conceptually, especially analogs from the past, to think about um, what could happen in the future. Um, and so I wanted to kind of ask you to talk a little bit about that, about what kinds of analogs are are used um, to enable this kind of far future thinking. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so it, it's kind of an interesting epistemic space for the Finnish nuclear waste expert because they know it's not possible to visit the far future and see what happens there, of course. Um, and they know it's not possible to fully predict exactly what will happen, um, or even approximate what will happen. Um, um, however, they also know that uh, there are analogs of deep time features around here in the earth today um, that can be studied and and at least can give us some something to sort of that's more tangible or uh, evidence driven or uh, uh, concrete that can be drawn upon in order to make extrapolations or predictions or hypotheses about what the far future could be like. For example, um, they needed to get a rough sense of what a future Finnish glacial ice sheet could look like uh, during and after the next ice age. Uh, so they studied this uh, huge glacier over in Kongerlusawak, Greenland, and they collected data on local groundwater and ice and permafrost and sort of said, okay, we're going to study you know, a present-day glacier in Greenland as if um, in sort of the subjunctive subjunctive uh, logic of as if it's a far future finished glacial ice sheet, you know, as you know, later on in the in the time frame of, of the safety and performance assessment period of the repository, right? So um, another example, they uh, needed to understand the country's landscapes and how they could sort of erode or, or change shape or form um, over the coming millennia and ice ages, even like the, you know, millions and millions of years. 
So they actually looked at this uh, crater lake, um, Lake Lapajärvi, that formed uh, after a meteor crash into Finland about 73 million years ago. So I started exploring that. Um, they also needed to forecast the uh, copper nuclear waste canisters futures and sort of understand how they would corrode potentially or not corrode. So um, they looked into this Mesozoic copper deposit that was found in uh, Mudstone in Devon, England. It was actually preserved for 170 million years without succumbing to major corrosion. Um, and what's interesting is accompanying all this, there's kind of self-reflections in the field, sort of these paraethnographies or auto sort of auto-analytical reflexive things that are going on um, where everyone kind of knows that there's limits to what a piece of copper and mud rock can really, you know, in England today can tell us about a nuclear waste canister that's going to be buried in granite bedrock for millennia um, into the future. Um, so the book kind of points to how you can slightly sort of sharpen your deep time skills by appealing to these analogs, deep time thinking skills by appealing to these analogs. Um, and points to them as sort of these pragmatic uh, stand-ins for future conditions that we can use as readers, as anthropologists, as people trying to take a longer sort of more timeful perspective in our daily lives. We can integrate them into our imagination to stretch um, our thinking across time and space. Um, so as an anthropologist, right, I sort of studying analogy making, right, as a sort of a set of artifacts and a set of social phenomena, a set of practices, a set of intellectual maneuvers uh, that are going on in the field. Um, so the question is sort of like, what are the different moves and styles of reasoning that are being deployed and mobilized to sort of make or break these connections across time and space? What sort of mental gymnastics are my informants undertaking to try to get these objects to speak, whether it's a cannon or a um, copper deposit or whether it's a glacier or ice sheet? Um, how do you make them speak through the logics of an analogy for another object that doesn't even really exist yet, which is the future repository um, in time? So thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I mean, um, I found this part of your book really thought-provoking just because I'm an archaeologist, and one of the things that we do all the time is to use analogs from the present to try to imagine the past, you know, whether it's through kind of experimental replication or ethnographic analogies or something like that. And so I think one of the things that's really interesting about the deep time reckoning and the kind of far future thinking that you're both analyzing and kind of um, promoting, I guess, um, is is the way that it, it yeah, it sort of has this uh, future and past uh, balance to it, you know, that kind of deep time thinking requires this ability to kind of uh, imagine the future as a version of the past, but then also kind of incorporate these possibilities that um, require expertise to kind of add to the, the analog, I guess. Um, the other thing that you you mentioned, so you talk about the analogs in chapter one, and then in chapter two, you kind of turn to the models and data and the more specific role of expertise in uh, kind of refining the the kind of broad analogs that people are using for um, for deep time reckoning. So, can you talk a little bit about um, yeah about kind of the 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 role of expertise, and then also. Um, in that chapter, you introduce us to kind of some of the specific uh, people who are the experts working in uh, for the safety case. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about them as well in that uh, explanation. 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, so as chapter one moves to chapter two, you see like a sort of um, one style of reasoning analogical elapsing into another one, um, which is more systems analysis and systems modeling. So they're two sort of different parallel, uh, but sort of complementary. And hopefully they, you know, fill each other's gaps a little bit and um, sort of lead to a, a robust spectrum of perspectives or what they called multiple lines of reasoning to sit parallel to, with each other um, to produce a safety case that sort of um, is redundant in the way that there's sort of a multiple uh, evidentiary thrusts and multiple sort of um, argument strategies for uh, making a case for something that's very hard to make a case for. So with analogies, it's really about, you know, in my book, it's about sort of analogical politics that happen on the field. Um, you know, like uh, what degree of sameness, what kind of sameness has to exist between objects in order to make a connection between the two objects across time and space, what type of difference has to be there in order to break an analogical connection across time and space. Um, so there's people are analogizing and disanalogizing and not agreeing on where the analogy should be connected or not connected. Um, so you, you see people sort of mobilizing dif difference for or difference against or sameness for or sameness against um, when trying to come up with arguments about deep time. So you get this real imaginative imaginative ecology of uh, re relational connections and disconnections that are come from people's competing epistemic dispositions and wide spectrums of optimism versus pessimism of the intellect about whether you can make these connections in the first place. Some people just thought that, you know, leaps of leaps of analogy or leaps of faith in analogy were just too far. Others, you know, are a little more open to it. But then you go into chapter two, as you mentioned, and you start meeting some of the actual people who are working on the modeling project, which is like a separate effort almost. And they're asking all sorts of really interesting questions too, similar to the analogy questions, you know. So like what sort of complications could the uh, decaying radioactive waste heat pose to the repository's uh, long-term safety? Um, at what rate will Posivos copper canisters and cast iron inserts corrode underground? Uh, if there's far future permafrost penetration going down to the repository, you know, what, what will the effects of that be? You know, what will the effects of the coming ice ages, glacial ice sheets in a way down on the repository, right? So how's that going to affect the facility? Um, will there be seismic activity after the next ice age um, when it melts and sort of the glacial ice sheet on top of it retracts, right? Because there's going to be three kilometers of ice perhaps on top of it. Um, and then there's the question of anthropogenic climate change, of course, which contours the different potentialities of the future as well. Um, so I try to understand how they think they're making reports like climate scenarios for Okiloto in a time scale of 120,000 years. Um, they're looking, you know, at ice cover 50 or 60,000 years from now. Um, they're creating compute computer models actually of, uh, um, how the site will eventually become an inland site. Currently, Okiloto um, is sort of an island site or a little islet. Uh, specifically, I think there's the technical term for it, but uh, it'll become an inland site because Finland is currently gradually rising up um, each year, uh, uh, raising an elevation. It's still decompressing from the last ice age uh, where there was this huge glacial ice sheet. So it's experiencing uplift and rebound. Um, so Finland is sort of the shoreline in the, in the West is sort of creeping outward into the Baltic eventually um, and, and into the Gulf and um, eventually will turn the island site into an inland site. So there's all these like biosphere assessment experts too, taking things like that into account. So they're 
sort of creating models of lakes and rivers and mires and forests that are like sprouting up and disappearing and changing shape and size over these 10,000 year time horizons. They model in soil erosion and floods and fires. Um, that, you know, they even take into account bioaccumulation, right? Like, so how radionuclides could escape from the repository and then travel up through groundwater channels and um, be released at certain points on the surface and um, bioaccumulate in plants and animals and end up in drinking water. And then they simulate 6,000 future people living in the <laughs> in the Okiloto area, eating only local food, sort of see to see how much of a dose they'll get. And fortunately, you'll find that, you know, um, even under really pessimistic or conservative modeling assumptions, you find that, you know, these people in the future, according to my field informants, um, are going to get, you know, either negligible or none or, uh, or below regulatory limits, um, 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 doses even under these really sort of like this array of extremely unlikely scenarios. So it's kind of good news came from this project, um, in that regard. So, um, so really that chapter, um, is very much about getting to know people's sort of uh, styles of reasoning and, and and ways they make connections and how that difference that's different from you know the way that systems analysts and the way that sort of engineers working on that and sort of data scientists working on that think and reason a little differently than say the sort of like field geologists working on geological analog studies in the previous chapter and how they reason differently than the archaeological analog studies people from the previous chapter where they're looking at archaeological artifacts and making comparisons. So it's really an anthropology of thought and reasoning and knowledge and the different maneuvers and styles connected to that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that um, struck me about chapter two in particular, and um, we'll talk a little bit later about um, the other chapters in the book, which are slightly different, but that at least at, at this stage of reading, I was kind of struck by how, um, how ordinary a lot of things were that you're sort of thinking about, you know, deep time. It's it's all these possible um, sort of, you know, doomsday scenarios in some ways. And I was sort of struck by the way that everything is kind of very um, sort of, I guess, calm, rational, that it seems that people are kind of just able to do their jobs, you know, and, and there's a little bit less of the... Um, I don't know, the kind of doom and gloom that I think you often hear in this country, for example, when we talk about um, nuclear waste. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, is that something that's particular to, as an ethnographer, is that something that's particular to to the safety case? Is that something about kind of the, the setting in Finland? Is it the, um, I don't know, the, the different... Um, the fact that you have so many different experts involved, what is it that kind of makes it into, I guess, something that's, that's not sort of sensational? Yeah, that's kind of, I'm reminded of my colleague, uh, Anna Wachsel-Braun's concept of making nuclear boring. Um, and her argument is, is often about the way sort of large bureaucracies like the International Atomic Energy Agency articulate, um, you know, uh, nuclear threats, in that case, it's nuclear weapons threats, um, is often done in a very, very circumscribed, rational sort of separation of the technical and political uh, uh, neutral language in a way that sort of makes something that's, you know, extremely interesting into something that's almost boring and reads like a, like a 
bureaucratic document or like a form or a process document or something. So, um, yeah, so that's one element of it, right? Like this emerges from an institutional context of, you know, contractors and consultants and, um, you know, university researchers and, and people from VTT, which is the state technical research, um, center for Finland and, uh, sort of corporate types from POSIVA and also regulators from, uh, um, from Stuke. Uh, so, and then the international body of uh, folks who sort of observers who look at this and validate it. So th there is this kind of uh, almost neutralized, it's very much the object of sort of expert thinking and theorizing. And, and rather than trying to really deconstruct that, I kind of try to dive deep into it and and just try to understand it on its own terms uh, in the tr sort of traditional spirit of ethnography um, and, and, and try to see what these are doing for the people. Um, now, the reaction to this, as you mentioned, is a lot different than it would be um, for instance, in the United States. Uh, so I talk a lot about the Finns in the book, of course, as as, as a um, kind of unique spot, right? Like it's a pretty, it's one of the most homogenous countries in, in Europe in many ways. There's only 5.5 million people there. Um, uh, there's not a large population. It's uh, far more egalitarian than any other place I've ever lived, uh, for instance. And I, I've been moving around quite a bit, like many anthropologists uh, do. Um but at the same time, it's, you know, home to these big political differences too, regional cultural variations, complex relationships, you know, there's all sorts of intersectional differences in Finland, right? There's um, the Swedish speaking linguistic minority, there's Sami, Roma, Estonian, Russian minorities, there's refugee populations from Somalia and Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. Um, so at some level, yeah, no two Finns are the same, uh, and no two have the same perspective. But in my book, I do lean a little more towards the side of not reifying the Finns as a, as, as a shared voice, but just pointing out the sheer fact that when you go to Finland, um, there's not that much sort of like societal contestation and hysteria about this nuclear waste repository project. Um, there's a lot of public trust um, in domestic engineers and technocrats and scientists and educators. People would almost brag to me about how they were, you know, um, fond of large centralized hierarchical organizations like public transport systems or government ministries and the welfare state, things like that. It, like the Ministry of Employment and Economy, which issues the you know permission to build or operate these facilities is one of the most trusted organizations in in Finland. And like civil servants are really on a pedestal over there. Um, whereas bureaucrat in the US is sometimes a um, you know, a four-letter word. So um it's a place where, you know, not all Finns fit into these generalizations, but it's generally a place where they're not only polls that say, hey, Finns place a lot of trust in domestic civil servants and police officers and educators and journalists and scientists, et cetera. But Finns will also almost tell you with pride that they count on expertise and technology and authorities more than others do. Um, and uh, so there's both numbers and the ethnographic experience of being there that it feels like kind of a quirky thing. So clearly this carves out a space where something is ambitious, um, something is uh, sort of wide ranging and uh, as the safety case um, in its temporal breadth and its epistemic optimism, um, kind of found an insulated sort of depoliticized space in which it could plot on sort of robustly over the years. And seeing some that happen is part of the ethnography too, of how this sort of modernist dream is still, still going <laughs> with the project where it might not be elsewhere. Great. Um, I, I want to uh, turn to chapter three now, and I think um, one of the things that that 
I mean, at least in my own reading of the book, I felt that in chapter three, we really sort of uh, got a better sense of you as an ethnographer via the kind of uh, more detailed uh, discussions that you had of the kind of uh, multi-temporal or multi-scalar thinking that some of the people that you describe, like Laura and is it Taimi? Um, Taimi, yeah. Taimi. Though those are pseudonyms, so it's not <laughs> yeah. really Taimi. But yeah. for for the present conversation, yeah, it's Taimi. So Taimi, okay. So that Laura yeah. and, and Taimi are doing, and so yeah, um, yeah. I, I I wanted to ask you to to just talk a little bit about kind of the um, what kind of struck you about those examples when uh, Laura and Tiny were talking to you about, you know, Nazca lines and um, the the forest analogy. What What is it that, that helped, you know, how did you um, see those things as kind of entry points into these, these ways of thinking um, kind of at a more individual level? I think this felt a bit more personal than the earlier chapters, which were really looking at the experts in their roles as experts. And this was, I think, a little more personal, it seemed to me. Yeah. So that that's the general trajectory of the book. Like chapter one and chapter two are very much about styles of reasoning, sort of like regimes of expertise, sort of the ways different types of experts enunciate their expertise and enact it and the sort of um, institutional ordering, uh, preferential um, deference to one type of expertise over another, um, sometimes hierarchically and things like that. Um, so chapter three and to an extreme sense, almost chapter four, really you start to get to know the cast of characters a little better. Um, so yeah, I, I explored Timey um, reflecting on her office life. She's, you know, a, a geologist and um, um, actually, you know, daughter's an archaeologist. And she, we talked a lot about that. I went to her um, summer cottage, uh, actually, the uh, Kesa Murki, which is sort of like a Russian dacha in Finland. They spent a lot of time in the summers in the countryside, et cetera, and um, sort of tapped into the way she was thinking and, um, you know, had some wonderful conversations and and people were just really delightful. Um, so um, we uh, started just reflecting on, she's, she, she started comparing the safety case project um, to the Nazca lines, as you mentioned, you know, of course, the huge geoglyphs that were built in I believe, uh, 400, maybe 600 AD, um, in what's now Peru. Um, and the general idea that Timey was saying that she always takes this in mind, especially when she talks to her daughter, who's the archeologist, right? Like, so, um, when you take this really zoomed in view from the ground, uh, you know, the Nazca lines look like nothing. They look just like, like long walls or arbitrary lines of stones. I grew up in Massachusetts, right? In central Massachusetts and all along the landscape, there's these old, like just lines and lines of sort of stone walls from the old, um, you know, agricultural times that just go through the woods and they kind of look like that. But when you zoom out from a helicopter perspective or an airplane perspective or a bird perspective, you start seeing, Hey, these are hummingbirds or lizards or sharks or monkeys. And they look like these cool designs. Um, so her point is kind of like, you know, when you're building the Nazca lines or whether you're designing the safety case, everyone who's working on it has to be good at grasping how their individual piece fits into the larger puzzle, even if you can't see the entire big picture. Like you gotta know that even though I'm building a straight line, this straight line feeds into a larger image that's higher. So um, it's very much about like navigating institutions at different temporal scales, different project management scales, et cetera. Um, and 
zooming in and zooming out from the sort of granular details to the sort of higher order, how everything fits together. Um, Laura is another one I met. She is not from Finland originally. Um, she, and also a pseudonym, um, she compared the safety case to a forest. Uh, so she had a similar sort of way of sort of auto analyzing or, or sort of doing a parethnography of her own expertise and how it fits together. So she was talking about zooming in, zooming out too. Um, she kind of interested in, you know, some people work in the treetops uh, of the safety case. They kind of weave together all the different models and data sets and scenarios, um, you know, stitching them together. Uh, some people are in the roots. They go out and like, you know, collect data on groundwater chemistry or um, fish populations. Some people just measure fish and then put it in spreadsheets and um, feed them into the sort of models, um, you know, biosphere activity or underground radionuclide movements, et cetera. So um, others just are in the branches more. They're kind of like in these middle level models, which are sort of fed by these, you know, data inputs and sort of lower um, um, or, or more or more specifically scaled models um, in the roots. And then they create information outputs that are later fed up into the sort of higher order, higher level um, realms of reports that are up in the treetops. So, um, so long story short, she's, she would always say like, don't get lost, you know, um, don't miss the forest for the trees almost. And, and, and realize that the way something as incredibly complex as the safety case can grow, um, you need dozens of different types of experts from dozens of different positions and scales and levels and expertises doing this sort of multi-angled, multi-temporal reckoning, um, and to and that's the only way you can make these really tentative sort of like uh, pragmatic and um, obviously reductive uh, forecasts of far future worlds. Uh, so for Timey, it was really about zooming in and out between the ground level details of your work and the wider project's airplane level overview. Um, for Laura, it was really about sort of the multidisciplinary, multi-level breadth of how things stitch together, almost like a collaborative ecosystem um, of a forest. And it's kind of interesting. It's like, this is kind of how the safety case models learned through these people's personalities and through the, through the chains of relations between people came chains of relations between the documents and the reports and the models. Um, and um, that's how sort of visions of far future worlds appear in my field site. Yeah. And I mean, to the end of that chapter in the reckonings that you have um, the kind of uh, proposals for how that kind of multi-scalar, multi-temporal thinking that you see in Laura and Timey, how, how those things could be um, kind of taken up and used by, um, I think you mentioned by uh, fossil fuel companies and things like that. Um, you, you mentioned some uh, different ways of thinking about time and some are from kind of classic ethnographies like Evan Pritchard's work on the newer some are um you know Barbara Adams thinking about different time scales um and so I wanted to ask you I think in in this chapter in particular it's sort of and the next one as well you know you're getting kind of uh more and more into the kind of really recognizable role of the ethnographer and then at the same time this is where i think as a reader you start to see that it's not just about um what can be learned about deep time reckoning from the people that you're working with but also that there is something being brought to the table i think by the fact that you are an anthropologist um yeah so i wanted to see if maybe you could talk a little bit about that 
Yeah, there's some, uh, actually in the book, there's a lot less of that in a lot of my other publications. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I do get drifting it towards that direction, especially, yeah, in this chapter. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, uh, it becomes the labor of starting to situate this, uh, uh, sort of deep time reckoning expert practices of the book, uh, next to other sort of regimes of temporal um, reckoning, uh, right? So like, you know, Evans Pritchard's sort of structural and ecological time, et cetera, and Barbara Adams on sort of commodity um, time and things like that. So, uh, um, and we're uh, one especially interesting one I'll actually say is in the realm of uh, Christian theology um, that I've, uh, that there's the, the name of the documentary about my field informants that came out before I even started going to the field is called Into Eternity. And it always kind of struck me that um, from a sort of metaphysical standpoint or ontological standpoint, like, like th there's nothing eternal about the nuclear half-life, right? Like, so th there's a defined starting point and then there's an end point where it putters out. It could be extremely far in the future, but it's not actually eternity. So, um, I started exploring other ways of other, other, other sort of like mental processes and cultural processes for cognizing time. So eternity, for instance, in, um, a lot of like, uh, Christian theology is, something that's outside of time right so there's nothing eternal about spent fuel um at all um because it's it's in the realm of the atemporal realm or anti-temporal realm they would say outside of the world and then the temporal world um sort of unfolds but in the eternal world everything happens at once um so that's why god is omniscient or that's why god is um sort of has ubiquitous knowledge of everything that's going on is because um, God sees all the temporal time bound moments happening at, that we see as happening in sequence across, across like an arrow of time or axis of time. They see them occurring as once and sort of co contemporary with each other. So that that's another way of thinking about these radically long orders of time. Christian theology, for instance, also has sempaternity as another concept, everlastingness, which is slightly different, foreverness, which is subtly different. So so even you don't even have to go very far from, you know. Um, the sort of Western landscape of thinking. You can just walk down the street and find a highly religious person. And I am not a religious person. So um, um, uh, this isn't like, you know, me trying to evangelize <laughs> this, but uh, just to kind of put it next to it in the comparative frame, you can find people um, doing all sorts of interesting sort of like temporal mental maneuvers elsewhere, um, you know, and, and the further you go towards, like, for instance, I live in, um, um, Humboldt Bay, uh, like in uh, Northern California, kind of near the redwoods. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there, there's all this time reckoning that goes on up here with around like, for instance, the, uh, Cascadia subduction zone earthquake, um, it's sort of cyclically occurring, um, every few hundred years, there's a massive, massive gnarly, um, earthquake that happens up here but it's encoded in a lot of the uh, sort of indigenous perspectives on on time uh so for instance like um there'll be stories of like one sort of you know um whale or some other some other probably not getting the details right sort of um mythical stories of things like sort of battles that lead to the submergence of land like are there stories around where i live of like you know in the past cyclically the whole area just goes underground and then comes back up periodically so there's a lot of these geological events that my informants look at are told through sort of like uh, um, sort of the mythological motifs or sort of uh, stories of 
or, or, or just different cosmological frameworks that start them. Um, elsewhere, I've written about or talked about um, sort of like, uh, you know, Aboriginal Australian stories about like uh, the dream time and going to other temporalities and, uh, um, and or, or, or like the, you know, the early ones, the spirit ones walking across the landscapes across uh, uh, the outback and things like that, and sort of embedding themselves in the landscape and, and they are the landscape and the landscape is them, et cetera. Um, so the book is not about that, but where you start to put these types of thinking, alternative temporal regimes alongside uh, this form of nuclear science, it, it, it kind of shows where its blind spots are um, and contextualizes it within other forms that could arguably be a form of sort of uh, geontological or geological or deep time thinking that are going on elsewhere. But that's just ultimately not what I studied. I studied these folks. So the vast majority of the book, of course, is zoomed in really closely on the different types of sort of uh, scientific expertise going on here, um, sort of Euro-American institutional politics that goes into it, if that makes sense. Yeah, but it does help to have that kind of bigger context to think of the deep time reckoning that's going on among the safety case experts as kind of one particular form of a of much, as you say, kind of broader way of thinking about both time and geology and things like that. Um, but speaking of kind of uh, singling in on the, the safety case experts, um, then maybe we can move to chapter four, where you kind of focus in on the particular character of uh, Seppo, who is this uh, kind of particular character in your ethnography, unlike many of the other people who kind of uh, rise to the to the surface when you're talking about a particular expertise or a particular way of thinking. Um, and Seppo really, Seppo and, and Gustav also sort of really come out as, um, as personalities, as kind of characters in the book. So um, I wanted to ask you kind of how that came about, you know, how you met these people, what they were like, and how it is that they came to be kind of central to this last chapter before the conclusions where you're kind of, you know, you're sort of building to this in a way. Yeah, that's my favorite chapter. Uh, it's the most anthropological chapter. Um, so you're learning about the logics up until this point in the book, and you're learning about the styles of reasoning, you're learning about the institutional configurations, learning about the sort of on the ground assembly of the safety case. And then here it just bursts into this story of this one person who I've never met. Um, I feel like I've met at this point, um, even though the the persona I've I've met through the stories about the persona is probably different than the the entity I would have the, the living person I would have met had he been alive when I showed up. But so a, a decade before I arrived in Finland, there's this uh key safety case expert named Seppo, or I given the pseudonym Seppo, who died suddenly in an accident, um, not an accident in post he was affiliated, but in free time, um, sort of leisure time and sort of outside of the workplace, there was an accident, um, which he uh, died in an untimely fashion. Um, and when this happened, that the, um, the safety case experts modeling projects were sort of thrown into disarray. Um, and the problem was that Seppo never really documented how he developed his geophysical models. Um, his colleagues had to spend months uh, sort of scouring his computer files and margin notes and trying to salvage these sort of remnants of his lost thinking and asking, you know, what would Seppo do here? What would Seppo do there? So I started writing about how they sort of channeled or conjured or summoned into the present, right? Um, 
the the specter of Seppo um, during troubleshooting moments in a figurative, of course, why I didn't see an actual specter of Seppo. So, um, but so for some, this meant, you know, the afterlives of his expertise were sort of alive in the gaps and knowledge left behind by this expert who was really reluctant to document how he did a lot of his modeling work. Um, for other informants, you know, it was these stories they told, like, you know, Seppo was really irritable or stubborn one day. And like, he had this real intellectual intensity to him and but, you know, he'd lighten up and, you know, during sauna nights or workplace parties or or trips abroad. So he, he could have a more jovial demeanor sometimes. Um, so people would catch themselves asking, like, what would Seppo do a lot, right, when you're troubleshooting? So um, I paid a lot of attention to just the story around this guy and the sort of, I don't want cult of personality is much too strong a word, but um, the, the interest of all these informants had in this person that had died almost a decade before I showed up to start doing field work and, and how the organization has been destabilized and how they had to sort of like go through his past work and look at the margin comments and try to like reconstruct his thinking patterns um, after, um, after he died. Uh, so I drew from like work on hauntology, um, you know, and the sort of uh, Deridian tradition and, and stuff about uh you know Abraham and Turok sort of like more psychoanalytically inflected sort of uh, intergenerational transference of um, affect uh, and sort of uh, I don't want to say trauma because this wasn't quite trauma um um no it wouldn't be the right word for it but um drew from that drew from stuff about ancestors figures and sort of like uh, predecessor figures and how they still can retain some sort of agency in social worlds even though their body has died they're still socially alive in a place. Um, and that's sort of what I got into with Seppo and we, we really get to know him and his former sort of like, uh, right-hand man, Gustav, also a pseudonym, um, and how they sort of navigated deep time and the fragility of human knowledge together and, um, and how their particular personality styles led to particular consequences of knowledge loss, um, when there was an unexpected accident that wasn't sort of like built in and, and and sort of guarded and hedged against yeah and i think i mean um kind of building on that what, what does the example of uh seppo offer in terms of thinking about the nature of expertise i know that's kind of part of the the broader field in which you would situate yourself as an anthropologist and so um yeah, I mean, you, you've talked a little bit about how kind of anthropological uh, theories and ideas have influenced the way that you an analyzed this um, figure of someone that you, you never met. But is there also a way in which that particular case study uh, tells us something yeah, about kind of the nature of expert knowledge or, um, as you mentioned, some of the loss of knowledge that can happen? Are there lessons to be learned there for kind of broader thinking about especially um especially for some of these the particular concerns you're dealing with um yeah is there is there a, a lesson to be learned there about personal relationships that you know in this chapter are so um at the front of of the chapter whereas in chapters one and two they were a little bit uh muted yeah yeah so that's it's kind of an interesting tension in the book. Some chapters, it's like, where are the people? And in other chapters, it's like, where is the sort of knowledge, institutional knowledge practices? So um, 
So yeah, that but it's interesting. The safety case kind of emerges from the tensions between these like individual personality idiosyncrasies and these like impersonal sort of like hierarchical organizational systems in which people are ultimately, you know, can be slotted in and slotted out and replaced, um, even though it's really hard to do so because it takes so long to be um, sort of steeped in the type of technical knowledges you need to do this really, really specific and niche type of um, work in the nuclear waste world. So, um, so really one lessons learned, you know, is about there need to be organizational strategies um, for hedging against knowledge loss, right? Like the archiving requirements or, um, information sharing databases, mentoring relationships, program redundancy, a, a good succession plan is important. So these are things that Poseva these days, you know, implements all of, uh, you know, in, in, in wise ways. And, um, main lesson is of course, there needs to be more of this moving forward. But, uh, on the other hand, you know, um, eventually across a deep time, all of this eventually breaks down, um, you know, um, information storage, te storage technologies are going to obsolesce and, um, you know, archives will be destroyed by uh, natural disasters or war. Uh, oftentimes, I'm not saying that'll happen in Finland, but, it, you know, it's a potentiality we see, like, you know, the Library of Alexandria burns, this type of things, and organizations are going to dissolve and, uh, you know, um, you know, economic fluctuations happen. Uh, human languages and symbolic systems even evolve, like, you know, you know when you're dealing with nuclear waste spent fuel or high level nuclear waste for buried for millennia, you know, how do you even mark the site? That's something that the U S faced, like, you know, how do you create monuments that, you know, you can put a few languages on them, but you know, if you go back a few thousand years and look what English looked like, it is quite different. Like try reading Beowulf or something even, um, which isn't even that long ago when you, you know, dealing with uh, deep time, you'll see, Oh, you know, this happens at a much faster rate. Um, so all these things sort of come up when we're dealing with issues of cross-generational knowledge transfer in the concept of deep time. And um, the fact that, you know, I think the, the 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 real big thing is that, okay, you have this Seppo character who was so such a key expert that he kind of delegated a lot and he kind of had the project on his strings. Um, he wasn't like a formal project manager. He wasn't like the director, but he... Uh, he just had all the knowledge. And when he just suddenly disappeared, the project lost central locus. And it, it just shows how the fragility of one sort of biological life um, or one sort of social presence or knowledge presence can ironically um, reshape and um, reorient uh, the, the ultimate sort of knowledge that's produced by a team, even if that knowledge is knowledge of depictions of, of far future worlds in Western Finland. Um, so it's really about the expansiveness of deep time and the vastness of deep time juxtaposed with like this sort of like life cut short for this, this one specific idiosyncratic expert. Yeah. And a good reminder of kind of the need to do that moving back and forth between different time scales, even in the very specific realm of thinking about the deep time scales. It's a good kind of, uh, particular example of the bigger arguments that you're making in other points of the book. Um, okay, I know I've taken up a lot of your time, so I want to talk uh, briefly about some of the, the kind of broader conclusions and also to ask you um, in thinking about kind of, you know, the overall optimism of the reckonings that you include at the end of most of the chapters and um, your suggestion that deep time thinking and, and the importance, recognizing the importance of expertise can be um, 
an important way of uh, sort of fighting some of the, the disinformation um, that can be very prevalent today. Um, I wanted to ask, I mean, the, the research uh, now is, I think, probably about a decade old. Um, the book has been out for a little while. And just kind of, uh, if you can give us a sense of, you know, how do you see, now that the book is out in the world, you kind of have the reckonings are out there for, for people to think through, to think about. And as you said, people from all different disciplines have been reading the book. Um, how do you feel about some of the, the conclusions and the arguments? Are you feeling optimistic? Are you feeling, uh, has, has anything changed that, uh, you know, you wish you could have incorporated into the book or anything like that? Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting one because a lot of, I, I say really early on in the book um, that the, the book is kind of a performance of other people's styles of reasoning. Um, and I tried to replicate the sort of uh, intellectual optimism and um, sort of ambitiousness of initiative and endeavor uh, that the safety case experts had when trying to predict 10,000 year ecosystem horizons or um, come up with something roughly credible about the far future. I tried to kind of, as I, as I flag in the preface and the introduction, like this is sort of a, a labor of absorbing that type of thinking and then sort of tweaking it around a little and then spitting it out a little differently. And um, so I kind of replicate in my analysis or, or in my narrative, some of their optimism and some of their um, uh, perspectives on the world in a very performative way. Um, and one thing there is there's, there are recommendations in that book, uh, for instance, that I just put in there that are absolutely like if the, I, you know, the, the book essentially argues that we need to build much more long-sighted societies. We have to change how we um, structure education. We have to change how we uh, walk through the world and our cognition of, you know, how the rocks between our feet um, have these multi, you know, billion year geological histories and the birds chirping around us have these like multi-million year evolutionary histories as do the cells in our body. Um, we need to have an art of noticing um, that, that, doesn't sort of put us into the time denial um, or put us into, I'm, I'm channeling a John Buell Hans book, The Scent of Time right now, but enables us to um, sort of experience duration and, and experience walking through the world in a, in a timeful um, or mindful way of the radical sort of nexus of intersecting timescapes and, and time frames and time horizons and, um, that are coming together in our lives. So that's what it ultimately argues for. Along the way, I make some proposals like there should be a um, global deep time reckoning association or something, or like, you know, um, there should be like armies of, um, you know, corporate uh, sort of like, uh, you know, PhD holding corporate um, sort of like uh, uh, training exercises to sort of like see the deeper history of a company's effect on planet and um, or even and, and and how the workforce came to be peopled across time and things like that. Um, and a lot of them are like, you know, probably not going to happen and intentionally so. I think a lot of the things I propose in the book just are more sort of in the spirit of, you know, um, in David Graeber's words, you know, the hidden truth of the world is that something we could make and we could make 
you know, just as easily um, make differently, or I think I got that almost right. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Pavanelli says, you know, we um, anthropologist, uh, um, you know, talks about the challenge of envisioning the world otherwise, or you have a uh, Gossen Haj uh, talking about how, like, you know, anthropology can help us imagine an alter politics, right, or uh, alternative modes of inhabiting or relating to the earth. So a lot of the things I say are kind of, I don't want to say provocations. Um, they're kind of like things that are make people say, okay, that's ridiculous, but why not? Um, so, so to gauge progress of how much of deep time reckonings, um, sort of policy proposals or pragmatic recommendations have been implemented across the globe, uh, is, <laughs> um, probably not really the spirit of the book because it, there is kind of like a tempered utopian streak where it's just like, this is more of a thought experiment, right? Um, so there are places like Wales, for instance, um, has a future generations commissioner, um, you know, there's been ideas like that for a while, right? Like, a, like Kurt Vonnegut had talked about institutionalizing, um, like getting a secretary for the future. Um, you know, like Kim Stanley Robinson just wrote about ministry future, um, recent science fiction book and things like that. So there's ideas out there, but, um, um, so yeah, I think, I think I'm happy with the book. Um, I like how it landed across so many different disciplines. It kind of like, uh, I don't think it scratches the itch of any one particular discipline, but it, it, achieved kind of wide breadth, which I was excited about, like science, um, did a feature on it. Um, nature geoscience did a feature on it. Um, it was covered in, you know, Yale, uh, 360 climate 360 and, um, covered in, there was a, actually a two page mystery public interest story where about an anthropologist uh, going out searching for the ghost or specter of this deceased nuclear waste expert named Seppo. That was in Finland's top newspaper, Helsing and Sanomat, like a Sunday edition kind of two page, um, front page, uh, public interest story actually. So, um, it, it resonated with a lot of people. So I'm really happy with that, uh, honestly. And then, um, I ended up doing another collaboration after with, uh, I think it was done through the, yeah, it was done through the headspace meditation app. Um, and, uh, uh, and it was me leading sort of, um, folks, uh, leading the, the sort of broadcaster who led it, the host down into a nuclear waste repository in Finland in the year 2120. Um, and then we're at the bottom, we meet, uh, none other than, uh, the ambient music legend, Brian Eno. Um, and he reflects on how ambient music and, can sort of lead to this sort of ego dissolution and letting time float and feeling of uh, lightness and like your death doesn't even matter that much. And then we talked to, so he participated in this. Um, we talked to a death doula when we're down there. We talked to a uh, indigenous knowledge system scholar. And then, you know, later in this podcast, we have like, you know, we all have to run out now because they're backfilling the tunnels when we get out. It's a hundred thousand years in the future. It's the ice age. So I've done a lot of cool, cool things around it, like a BBC future article about like how deep time thinking can be a source of wellness um, and, and, and sort of perspective, like how expanding your time horizons outward um, can lead to new cognitive states or value shifts or perspective shifts and things like that. So honestly, the book, yeah, I'm kind of happy with how it came out. I mean, so I, I, uh, I don't know. Once you let the book out, it's kind of not yours anymore. You know, it's like other people's to decide what it means. But, um, on my side, it's been kind of an excuse ever since, um, fall of 2020, when it came out to just kind of do interesting projects elsewhere, uh, whether they're the multimodal ones, like I mentioned with Headspace or, um, trying to write for larger outlets like Scientific American or BBC or something like that. So pretty happy with it. Um, the, no regrets. Next book will be better hopefully so 
Well, I love that. I love that. Um, I mean, it's kind of fitting with the some of the ideas in the book about, as you say, these kind of provocations to just think as expansively as possible and why not and sort of the, I don't know, the, the tensions between past and present and things like that to have, um, yeah, kind of amazing headspace meditation. Um, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> And if I had written a more traditional ethnography, I probably wouldn't have been able to do that, right? Like if I wasn't like proposing slightly ridiculous things, kind of in a tongue-in-cheek way, it yeah. might not have attracted as much attention. You know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> thanks, so thanks for playing that. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so let me wrap up because you um, hinted at a next book or you, you you know, at least alluded to it. So um, what what would be the next thing that you'd be working on if you're if you're gonna uh, write another book in the uh, shallow time future? Yeah, so uh, that book, um, calling it long storming currently, um, and that will be sort of about what I just alluded to. Actually, um, the question there is more: How does expanding your time horizons outward? Um, across the past and future and sort of creatively riffing about different past and future potentialities. Um, the kind of, to use the word bricolage again, pulling together different time frames and then coming up with different perspectives and conclusions. And how does that process, forget the product, forget the scenario that comes out or the prediction that comes out. How does the process of cognitively doing that change people is kind of the question. Um, so, um, for some, you know, it creates a feeling of perspective and wellness. And it's like, look, I only have this tiny amount of time on earth. I'm going to go live my life differently. I'm going to be nicer to my friends and family and donate money or something. Actually, yeah. a lot of the, there's research that's something that experiences of awe or experiences of like deep time awe make extremely wealthy people more likely to philanthropically give, for instance, <laughs> is one example. Um, another example is like, you know, um, Another goes the other way. Emile Durkheim talked about, uh, you know, in Le Suicide, French translations about like the infinity, infinity sickness, he called it when you're, you're so lost in, in, in infinity of desire, he called it sort of outward thinking about the world and its infinity that you lose your ego and you just don't want to live anymore. Um, or you're so lost internally when you're ruminating about say deep time or he didn't say deep time but ruminating about endless complexity within the abyss within um, that you lose your ego and want to commit suicide and things like that so and that's something that can evoke when you position yourself in deep time and suddenly everything feels meaningless and so that's one response another response is you know people reconfiguring how institutions work like the long now foundation is has an organizational continuity project where they're looking at like bars and hotels and um like uh, other sorts of uh, really long-lived um, organizations like temple building companies in Japan that have been around for hundreds of years or thousands of years in some cases, or insurance companies in Germany that have been around for a long time. The Masons have been around for a long time. Catholic Church, of course, quite a while. Um, so into organizational continuity and things like that. That's another thing that it can do for you. So the book is basically looks at a couple of case studies. Um, one of them is the Long Now Foundation. Um, I did some field work with them. I interviewed, say, Stuart Brand, the founder of the Whole Earth Catalog and um, founder of the foundation, interviewed Danny Hillis, um, who, you know, founded Thinking Machines, a pioneer of, um, of parallel computing. 
um, interviewed Kevin Kelly, one of the founders of Wired magazine. Um, and I also went on some a camping trip uh, to some 4,600-year-old bristlecone pine trees in uh, sort of the Nevada desert, kind of near um, near um, Mount Washington. It's kind of near Great Basin National Park, if, if you've ever been there. And uh, um, so that's one case study. Another case study is about how sort of ecologists and forestry folks up here are looking at sort of the redwoods long-term time horizons. And, um, there's some like, uh, sort of old growth, um, sort of like, a uh, um, pygmy tree, um, things happening out here with some of this called it, it was a jug handle park. I think it's called in Mendocino. And so how, how dealing with these long-term plants have changed the way people look at the world when they're dealing so closely with them. So it's all ethnography and figure out how different people in different places have been personally changed in terms of their sort of mental state or their outlook on the world or their values or their ethics. Um, and a final one is just like a historical study, um, like looking at how Bronislav Malinowski uh, felt um, when he was looking at questions of life after death during the, uh, you know, his, his Baloma article, where he's looking at the different sort of like uh, trajectories of your Kosi uh, and your Baloma spirit after you leave the body after you die. And so that gets into the sort of like non-Western kind of like regimes of or, or, or thought patterns of thinking about time. Um, so that how that led him to reflect on the cult of the pure fact, as he called it, and the, the sort of like, fragility and fleetingness of knowledge and, and and the radical diversity of um perspectives of what it means to go somewhere after death so um that's sort of a form of future gazing and not deep time thinking but sort of is deep time thinking if people are kind of in a constant cycle of rebirth i guess so um so yeah this that book's very much about like what deep time thinking does for the psyche and for the person and for their value systems and their perspectives and things like that and kind of should be a neat one hopefully Wow, it sounds like uh, we'll have another interesting and very thought-provoking book to look forward to and hopefully talk about on the New Books Network. Um, so, Vincent, uh, I want to thank you so much for talking with me today, and it was really, um, really a pleasure to discuss deep, deep Time Reckoning with you. So thank you so much, and take care. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs>